Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and so much more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. We are so happy to be part of this spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now, on with the show. I spit on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spencers of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are discussing my favorite things, anime, (laughs) 80s anime to be exact. Not only are we going to go through the history of anime, but the themes commonly found in anime and where they stem from, for which is often related to Japan's cultural trauma. The movies up for discussion are Lilycat and Demon City Shinjuku. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. Alright, Jess, since this is your favorite, favorite, favorite thing ever, uh, why did you choose these two films? Well, I chose both of these films, A, because they are two well-known horror-related anime films. Both of them I saw when I was very young, and they left an impression on me. So I was excited to kind of jump in and talk about these two classics, kind of introduce people to anime in itself. I'm also very partial to 80s-style animation, and I really like the animation of these two animes. And I find, too, that they both address similar themes, but from very different viewpoints, one from a scientific sci-fi uh, perspective and then another one for more of superstition and occult perspectives, which is, I think, is so interesting because that's often seen in a lot of Japanese anime, either series that are surrounding Japan and the occult or Japan and technology. Absolutely. Well, I was really glad that you chose these two because as we'll talk about later, I really enjoyed them. Um, (laughs) Uh, Before we get into the history of anime, though, Jess, I wanted to ask you, why do you love anime so much? Because, folks, Jess is a super fan, and I just really want to know why you love anime so damn much. It's really funny because like earlier this afternoon, I was talking to uh, one of my partners and he calls me a weeb. Actually, no, I used to call myself an otaku. Mm-hmm. Then when I was telling about all my anime experience and everything I used to do when I was a preteen and teenager, mm-hmm. he's like, no, you are a weeb. You love, like you are adorable. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Explain to the folks what otaku and weeb is. <laughs> well, otaku is a term that came out in the 19, around the 1970s and it was coined as a term to describe someone who is really intensive about their animation hobby. Mm-hmm. So, and then a weeb is someone who's like beyond that. <laughs> Next level super fan. <laughs> Next level super fan, yeah. And so, like, I have some things in my, you know, my final thoughts that I will get into about as to why, but one of the reasons why I got huge into anime is because it came 
to me at a very important time in my life where I was going through a really, really hard time. And it just opened up a whole new world of creativity, imagination. And it's been an amazing month for me because I feel like I got so out of touch with anime for so long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this month, you know, jumping in and watching these two films and then also talking with my partner who's also a big anime fan. And we've been like, why aren't we watching this? Like, you know, and so it was like just getting back into it and rediscovering that passion and that creativity has been great for me. So yeah, I have, it came at a really important time for me in my life and it was my escapism and I jumped in wholeheartedly. Yes, you have. And folks, you should <laughs> should follow us on Instagram anyways, but throughout the month, I've been really enjoying watching Jess uh, post uh, photos of her collection because I didn't realize how damn diverse extensive it was. Like I know that I yeah. have known for 20 years, she was a big fan, but holy crap, she's got some like random obscure stuff in there oh yeah well, for sure <laughs> especially when like my partner was like looking to buy me biohunter and it's like this random very obscure hard to find anime and i own it on dvd and i was just like yeah i own that I, and that was because like where we came from north bay right yeah. there wasn't much i could get there oh, yeah. and so when i'm in walmart or i was in mud shark and like they were selling any of these dvds yeah. like i was like i'm buying this i don't care what it is i don't care if i don't like it i yeah. And buying this because I just needed to have as much anime in my life as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so did you check out anything brand new to you this month? Yes, I have. And it, yeah, I have uh, checked out quite a few brand new animes. Uh, Death Parade is one of them and Dead Man's Wonderland. Mm -hmm. And um, I've got a couple more. Like I ended up subscribing to Funimation because Excellent. I didn't, I don't know why I hadn't already. Right. And I found so many yep. series that I love on there and then a whole bunch of series that I've been wanting to see on there. Yeah. And so I have this huge queue now of <laughs> Just anime. So literally the next 2021 is going to be anime and horror for me. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's yeah. wonderful. Excellent. Well, I just wanted to know. And I thought I'd wait until the podcast recording to find out why. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes. Fair enough. So to get into anime, and like I said, I was super excited for this top of this month because also we got to go into the history of it. And it's actually got a very diverse history, one that relates very significantly to the themes that we're going to talk about both in Lilycat and Demon City Shijuku, but this whole, the anime industry has had to survive a lot and has got through a lot. So a lot of the early Japanese anime was actually very costly to produce um, over Western and Disney style animation. So that's why we see those and they're a lot more popular, but for Japanese animation it's always been an uphill battle from the very start from lack of funding natural disasters that would destroy studios it was always an industry that had to always start from scratch over and over again and always had to compete against lesser style of animation but also lesser cost and more newer technologies but one of the reasons why uh, Japanese anime really got a hold in Japan was mostly because of its militaristic culture anime was actually used more for propaganda mm -hmm. to lift the 
morale mm-hmm. of their citizens and to really uh, com- build a commitment towards the war effort. And I thought that was so interesting to find out that anime was actually used more by the military and the government mm-hmm. in terms of producing content, material, propaganda to get people involved. And the very first anime came out in, well, animation started in 1917, but the very first anime was called Momotero's Divine Sea Warriors, which was 74 minutes long and produced by the Navy. So the earliest of our animated films, as Kelly was saying, uh, started out in 1917, 1916 with a lot of manga artists getting involved in the actual um, animation style and creating of effect in theater productions. So a lot of the earliest animes were actually only five minutes long and they were actually made out of chalk on board and it was a lot of erasing and redrawing of lines in between the different camera takes. And then eventually they succeeded that with doing paper 2D stop motion paper cutouts and often these were very silent and but they had like or they would have like live music accompanying them or storytellers who would still tell the story and many of the themes that were talked about in these uh, animations were very like funny stories of like samurai japanese folk tales and weirdly enough the mail system and i don't know why <laughs> i have no idea why oh goodness <laughs> they just really respect mail delivery people which i should they, especially <laughs> during should. this day especially during this past year like all <laughs> props to the people who are delivering all of our packages and all the shopping that we've been doing oh my god <laughs> so much shopping <laughs> So much shopping. So in 1921, the very first anime studio was founded, but then it was later destroyed by the Great Kanto Earthquake, which literally wiped out the entire building, and so it had to be essentially start from scratch. So then you get later in the 1930s and 40s, you get anime still continuing despite the destroyed studios, the lack of funding, and how laborious it was to actually build this like five-minute cutout process of this anime. But then we get the production and the discovery of the first recorded animated talkie by Kenzo Miyasako, which was an anime, the first anime where they synced up a pre-recorded voice with the actual um, animation. And it was called Within the World of Power and Women. And it was a story about a man having an affair with his secretary after growing tired of his domineering wife. Ooh. And then in 1934, we'll start seeing the um, animation with cells coming along. And this was Dance of the Chagamas. And this is where characters and moving elements were painted on transparent sheets of celluloid and this was a huge improvement to the animated field but it was also costly very expensive and so what ended up happening is that they needed more funding to be able to continue their studios and continue the works and this is where a lot of animation was end up being used for promotional videos for government ads for military propaganda and as well as using them for educational videos for children and advertising for commercial companies which is still happening today in <laughs> Japan. But then in World War II, we'll see animation rise with the larger studios coming in and the first full-length film, which was Mama Taro, Sacred Sailors of 1945. And this was the premise about being in the Japanese Navy, but it featured anthropomorphic animals Ooh. striving for peace. And apparently, this animated film would bring a later very important manga artist, Osamu Tiozaku to tears and he was eventually known as the god of manga in 19 in the 1950s. Speaking of the 1950s we get a bit of an explosion and that's where anime really starts to hit its stride so following World War II 1948 actually 1956 so obviously that's after 1948 the production of our very first modern anime company forgive my pronunciation Toei Animation created by Okawa Hiroshi and his ambition was was to become the Disney of the East. 
So this was a hugely successful, popular production company, and they're the ones that really got onto the mainstream in television in the 1960s with big releases like Dragon Ball, Sailor Moon, and Digimon. Exactly. And which is really interesting in the 1950s um, with these studios becoming like the, the Eastern version of Disney, it was really interesting that this was a time where anime was being shipped more overseas, mm-hmm. and this was because they found more profit more profitable overseas. People would actually bootleg Mm. copies of anime Mm -hmm. in the 1950s. And I just thought that was really interesting because I remember doing that in the 1990s and 2000s (laughs) still, like, to get some of the anime that I wanted to see that wasn't being produced or wasn't being sent over to a Western company to dub and stuff like that. I had to, like, get bootleg copies. Mm -hmm. And that's how I was able to see a bunch of anime. So it's really interesting that that started in the 1950s. And it also answered a really interesting question for me for because I always wondered that sometimes with Japanese anime, the places that they set the scenes and stuff like that, you always think, well, why isn't this in Japan? Or why Mm -hmm. isn't this, you know, not all of them are set in Tokyo. And I thought this was interesting that often a lot of these animes would deliberately not set these stories in Japan or they will downplay the Japanese origins of the characters so it could be palatable to people overseas Mm -hmm. and audiences Mm -hmm. and people buy it because they could take those animated characters and dialogues and manipulate them however they want Mm -hmm. for for a Western audience. So I thought that was super interesting and how that started in the 1950s what you said with the rise of uh, Taui as a company. Absolutely. And of course, merchandising started during that time. Again, our us, especially in North America, but over there in Japan, People started getting crazy about anime, especially in the 60s. So merchandising became completely entrenched as part of the industry, part of your business model. How can you merchandise and market and produce your your series or your full-length movie? And around this time in the 60s, Going into the 70s, the most popular genre was science fiction and space related, followed by shows about girls with magical powers, (laughs) Jessica. Yes. (laughs) Whenever I think about girls with magical powers, I always think of you because I feel like that's like 100% your jam. It was in my in my young in my youth. It was definitely in my jam. I was all about the magical girl animes, but I've, I've grown away from them just because I'm an older woman and don't see that see things the world that way anymore. But well, and that's super interesting because and the reason why all this happened in the 1960s is guess what, people? Television. Mm-hmm. Television changed the world of animation. Yeah. It was no longer something that you could only see on a projector in a theater screen, mm-hmm. or if you had a friend who had a projector, it was something that people could actually now see on TV. And it also changed how animation stopped was being created. And the very first and most popular, and I remembered, because I remember seeing it growing up, was 1963's Astro Boy. Mm. And it was the first anime TV series, and it was about a robot boy who lives among his humans and battles crime, aliens, and other robots. And this was the first half-hour anime that used a new technique called limited animation, which is reducing frames by per second and using cells and reusing cells for different parts of the body that are moving throughout each scene. And they were also able to use a lot of the original manual manga panels as storyboards so they no longer need to write and lay out individual episodes and Astro Boy was a huge success in the US and I can believe it because I remember seeing it in the 80s or early 90s watching it at my grandparents place and I think when I think how like Sailor Moon was my gateway and I'm like "Mm, I remember watching Thundercats and Mm -hmm. Astro Boy growing up I didn't watch any of these things (laughs) no (laughs) not at all I I don't recall any of this on TV (laughs) 
No, Astro no. Boy. And we also got Kimba the White Lion, nope. which was the first color anime <laughs> TV series. And so it was just like, you know, yeah. these huge success of these animes. And a lot Absolutely. of the tropes started of the really big eyes. And I'm like making big eyes like you guys can see them, yep. but you can't. Yep. Big eyes, yep. robot battles, and stylized hair, which is always my favorite thing in an anime because you can always tell a protagonist in an anime by their hair yep. style and color. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, do tell. What does the, the protagonist's hair color and shape usually look like? Usually it's like very pointy or like it's like a crazy hairdo and it's like usually like a vibrant color so it's like either red or purple or or white and like all other like surrounding characters who are like if they're not part of the main ensemble mm. or the main characters you see throughout they're the typical like brown hair and black hair you know like they look like people people yeah. like regular people whereas yeah. the other ones were like I know I did not grow I did not like have hair like that <laughs> That's interesting. I have not watched enough to notice that, but that's a really interesting tidbit. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as Kelly said, we get into the 1970s and we start seeing a lot of artists leaving those very first early prominent studios that came out in the 1960s and 50s and start creating a lot of their own studios. And then we start seeing animation, not only a Japanese standpoint, but also they started doing uh, various styles of animation for other cultures, such as 1974. Is Heidi the Girl of the Alps, and I remember seeing that growing up. But this was a time where Kelly said, like, anime continued to grow and defy itself. It was very popular in terms of science fiction, and it became fully cemented in Japanese culture. The first anime magazine was published called Animage, and it was a magazine devoted completely to anime and manga, and it was created for fans to keep people up to date. And I remember this magazine because I had a few of them. Oh and my I thought God. it was so cool <laughs> to get a magazine. You're part of anime be- history, Jess. I am part of it. Like I remember getting the, the like oh seeing God. those magazines and getting them and I'm so out of my like not comfort zone but my fucking wheelhouse. <laughs> Right? You're like, I've loved horror for like 25 years. I'm like, I've loved anime for 25 years. For 20 something years, too. (laughs) And like I said, the term otaku was coined in the 1970s, describing someone with their intense love of anime. And then also, the very popular Mobile Suit Gundam series was released in 1979. And if anyone knows what I'm talking about, the Gundam series has been along for a round time. There's different variations of it um, throughout history, but they're always around the same themes of combining science and politics together and is very politically based but then you've got like mechas mm-hmm. fighting each other in space and stuff like that but it also became very popular because uh, Bandai bought the merchandise rights for it Ooh. and they created the Gundam model kits and so you could have like all these different Gundam special series and, spe- and with movies and you build all these kits and like millions of them have been sold and like I remember going into anime stores and seeing these kits and they're like everywhere and they're beautiful and very exciting wow <laughs> I should just sit back and let you run the episode. Just, just, just run. <laughs> now I'll let you take over the 80s. No, it's totally fine. Yeah, so initially as first, you know, you had anime being more propaganda films and then it kind of gets into TV series geared more towards children. A lot of it mm-hmm. is geared towards children. But then with the 70s, it turned into a lot of like young adults started liking it. And then we get into the 80s where we start getting more, a little bit more adult, a little bit more interesting in my mind. Uh, but the 80s were considered to be the golden age of anime. And I don't have to yeah. be a super fan 
to understand why and see why. There's many beloved genres and titles that came out during that decade. Dragon Ball, Akira, that's a classic. But then, and this is kind of where I kind of come in, maybe not really, but, (laughs) you know, there were some really iconic releases, but 1985 saw the creation of one of the most iconic anime studios, Studio Ghibli. So in 1984, after the massive success of Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, probably the only anime that I super, super love and the the only one that I really saw as a child, our renowned director Hayao Miyazaki and longtime Mm. colleague who created Grave of the Fireflies, which is a very iconic, famous anime I've never seen, but apparently it's very emotional, really wonderful, fantastic. (laughs) It is amazing. I fucking love Grave of the Fireflies, but it will destroy you. I believe it. I believe, I've just seen like a trailer and some stills from it. That's that's enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they started yeah. their own studio and went on to release two of the most successful anime movies to date, Castle in the Sky and Kiki's Delivery Service. Both two of my favorites of Studio Ghibli films. <laughs> yeah, it was a, the 80s was a huge time because mm-hmm. this was a, at the time, like Japan was in its economic bubble. So it was doing really well. So budgets for studios were increasing. They were able to try different technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, advancing the the skill sets and stuff like that so like what kelly brought up of akira akira is a huge example of that success in the 1980s for anime because it was such a lavish on-screen animation it was the first anime to use pre-recorded dialogue and then animators used to match the mouse the mouth movements and actually too and it's always funny enough because akira will always be the anime that introduces a lot of mm-hmm. people to that medium because mm-hmm. you get akira because when I mean, you get akira and like okay now you go into all these other ones like dragon ball Beautiful Dreamer, which is another one. But yeah, a huge explosion of genre, of the interest. We see anime sources expanding into uh, manga. Mm-hmm. We get novels. We end up getting original series, video games, like mm, um, yes. JRPGs. Yes. Like, <laughs> like my partner is a huge JRPG and I can see fan. And I can see why, because it combines both anime and that RPG yeah. element to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. For sure. CGI started to be used in Japanese anime too. So that was able to create a difference in the terms of styles. So many different styles started coming out then. And then also more importantly too, the rise of VHS. People can now own anime and it was awesome. It was awesome. Like you were there. (laughs) (laughs) I was like a bit, like like still a young kid. Just a little baby. Just a little little baby. Fresh, fresh Jessica. Yeah. And then from the 1990s to now and the 2000s are modern anime. So by the 1990s, anime is hugely popular internationally. Lots of super loyal fans like Jess called (laughs) Otaku. (laughs) And really, this is the time, the 90s, we start seeing more of like the very adult anime coming out. Our hentai, our triple X, our very violent, very, uh, our taboo terrors, let's say. I'm making that those types of uh, that, that type of genre and you know there's a lot of sexuality a lot of more graphic violence and so you know those are those are the ones that I really really tend to to go towards obviously not meant for children censorship boards in Japan began to kind of clamp down in the 90s a little bit on what could actually be shown when and how yeah. and where on Japanese television CGI 
uh, started really getting added to anime as opposed to using what Jess has been talking about, cells. Computers made it easy to manipulate animation and was even used by Miyazaki in Princess Mononoke. So the nice blending of like CGI with traditional methods came, started happening to make like really, really vibrant, wonderful, interesting new products. Which is great because like in the 1990s, Japan's economy crashed mm-hmm. and it crashed hard. And so in this, in the anime industry, once again, was hit by that because they ended up having to cut budgets Mm -hmm. and many studios end up closing and it took a lot for them to survive and Studio Ghibli was really one of the main um, Mm. studios that was able to survive through that because of their successes. Absolutely. 2000s anime so essentially by now it flourished all over the world still international. International licensing was added to the popularity of everything. Obviously merchandising is still huge maybe even bigger now than it was in the 80s like it is crazy. Yeah. (laughs) The amount of stuff you can get toys and props and pillows and costumes and cosplay and oh my god so much merch it's all about the merch wonderful spirited away studio ghibli's took best animated feature in the oscars in 2002 and of course the internet is bringing everybody together right jess brought you together with all of your super fans it did i spent a lot of time looking at different anime websites and in anime chat rooms and (laughs) (laughs) trying to build fan sites so yeah and that was all because of (laughs) geocities yeah definitely But yeah, and and it was because of the anime. Like, I remember seeing different versions of anime growing up, right? Now you see, like, like I mentioned, Astro Boy, Thundercats, and, you know, but I was still a kid. But it wasn't until 1995 when I saw Sailor Moon, my mind was blown. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, I need to have this in my life. And Sailor Moon has been credited as one of the animes to revive the anime industry again in the 1990s mm-hmm. because it had been struggling and because we were able to, it had commercial success across seas like Kelly said we were, it started to get into deeper and dark themes and topics and you'll eventually get like one of my other favorite ones Neon Genesis Evangelion which is a super dark and philosophical anime that really leaves your head hurting at the end of it but it's so great mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like Kelly said you jump into like the whole taboo terrors area late night anime started happening mm-hmm. which was one of my favorite things on like the space or sci-fi channel because you were able to show themes and imagery that could be presented to audience but couldn't be seen during the daylight it had to be seen at like at midnight mm-hmm. you know these dark animes like ninja scroll and akira and perfect blue biohunter like that's how i see all these movies like literally every story i'll say about lily cat and demon city shujuku i'm like i watched it late night in anime and i don't recall this at all ever being on tv <laughs> <laughs> I, I had satellite so it was like my parents had satellite for a while so Ooh, i was lucky with that right because you're out in the boons the boondocks out in the boons. with one of those yep. massive satellite dishes we yep. had digital yep. tv once that became a thing but we didn't have satellite that's probably why all right should we get into our first film lily cat yeah let's do it Reversal syndrome. Reversal syndrome? It's a function of some very rare bacteria where they reverse the mitosis of the nuclei and accelerate the growth process of normally dormant cells in a short period of time. What's weird is the absorption of the human tissue into the alien cell makeup. It's as though the bacteria have used the human bodies to metamorphose from a caterpillar into a butterfly. 
If what you're saying is what happened, that those monsters are the recycled bodies of Dorothy, Carolyn, Morgan, and the rest, then what's to stop it from changing again into something even more horrible? Yeah, but why metabolize everything but our clothing? Huh? Come to think of it, I'd have done the same thing. He followed his principles through, even though he already knew the bacteria had infected him. He came on board this ship with one objective, and that was to put handcuffs on an escaping murderer. And once he accomplished that objective, he never even thought about looking back again. I'll say one thing for him. You have to respect him. Like I said earlier, no surprise to anyone, this was my first time watching Lily Cat. <laughs> that is my story. <laughs> <laughs> and she's sticking to it, guys. Yep. I saw Lily Cat, like I said, it was like a late night anime where I used to be such a loser. And I became the queen of my VHS in the sense that I took care of it because I would set up pre-recording, like to like set up the time for recording anime at night. So because I couldn't stay up mm -hmm. at midnight to watch these animes, I would go set up the, the channel on, on the space <laughs> on sci-fi, set up my VCR to hit record at, at 12, and then literally that's what would happen. And the next morning I wake up, check if it all worked, and that's how I saw Lilycat. <laughs> Commercials and all. Yeah, excellent. Exactly. <laughs> what did you like about Lilycat? Like, what were your impressions? I love that it was short. I think it's like 75 or 80 minutes long. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's from the 80s, 1987 to be exact, folks. Uh, mm -hmm. So I like the animation style a lot. I like that it's fucking lightning speed in its pacing. I liked its score a lot. That really stood out to me. I liked it a lot. It's fucking space horror, so I'm into that. Mm -hmm. So I liked the premise. I like that it's alien meets the thing meets fucking dead space. So into that. Also, cyborg cat. <laughs> <laughs> I am literally going to echo a lot of the same sentiments. That's one of the reasons why I picked it. Because, yeah, that 80s synth soundtrack, that's one of the reasons why I love anime from the 80s. I love the style. I love the synth soundtracks mm -hmm. that they got going on. I love the colors. They use a lot of lighting stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's dark, right? And they're going into space and they have to deal with all these uh, dangerous situations and all the themes that are coming up throughout the anime that gets super interesting. So there is only one thing I dislike about this anime and that if you don't pay attention you don't know what happened or it yeah. doesn't really you don't really understand what's going on with the cat you're like okay yeah. what you cannot breathe <laughs> look away blink or anything because it's lightning fast so yeah. you have to pay attention <laughs> yeah so, was there anything that you disliked in particular? Um, because I, I, it was space horror and I liked the premise a lot, I actually, even though I liked the fact that it was sh pretty short, I would have liked if it was actually longer. Like, give me like a full maybe hour and a half to flesh out the story mm. more, develop our characters more. Because I had like, I didn't give a fuck about who these people are or anything. What I thought was just fascinating and astounding and funny was that these people didn't really seem too upset that there was some mysterious bacteria killing right? people. <laughs> 
They're just like, oh, so-and-so's missing. Oh, their bodies were here. But now they've disappeared. Like, yes, no, this is crazy. And also there was no like infection control. Once they figured out that there was, it was a bacteria and obviously deadly bad bacteria mutating bodies. Mm -hmm. They literally didn't shut anything down. Nobody's wearing any suits. Like nobody really did anything. No. (laughs) Like they didn't do anything. Like it's happening. And then the movie's over. Yeah, they literally (laughs) were just like, we're just going to suspect each other and like handcuff each other and stuff like that. But we're not actually going to put into place any protocol to try and save ourselves in the ship. Right? (laughs) And it's funny too because I find with this one, you get this crazy misdirect where you think the female lead is going to be like the main important person throughout the the anime. Just the way they set everything up with her introduction and her connection with the cat that ends up being the guy Mm -hmm. who ends up being like the like our main protagonist and she just ends up being that typical damsel in distress motif that really I don't like in that's like the one thing I don't like about 80s anime is a lot of the women sometimes mm. tend to be the damsel in distress mm-hmm. and I, I don't care for that That, but but then there are animes from the 80s like Bubblegum Crisis where it's like all women and they're kicking ass and they're badass and I love it yeah she was very forgettable like I just remember a woman with a cat and like that's it <laughs> Because, of course, I would. And, like, yeah, the only other thing I didn't like is the fact that if you don't pay attention to that one particular scene where they explain the cyborg cat, yes. you still do not understand yep. why there's a cyborg cat yep. Absolutely. on the ship. <laughs> Yes, I almost missed it. I think I even had to rewind it. I was like, wait a minute. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially too, because like, and, and that was the other thing, the real cat dies. The real cat gets, either it gets eaten by the bacteria or it gets destroyed by the cyborg cat. I can't remember. It was literally torn from limb to limb by some oh. mutated thing. Also, thank you, yeah. Jess, for giving me two movies where cats die in terrible ways. I, uh, I totally forgot. <laughs> I didn't vote for both of these. I was like, no. Both fucking movies. I was like, wow, Lily Cat. So I watched Lily Cat first, then uh, Demon City. I was like, oh, God, the cat's being ripped apart. And then Demon City. I was like, holy crap, Jess. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so content warning, folks. Cats die. Yes. Yeah. And I was not giving those warnings. Which is sadly often a theme in anime as well. <laughs> <laughs> Cats, dogs, children, uh, people, planets, you know. Yeah. Well, I think this obviously then is a, a great time to jump into our point about anime and trauma because we were both kind of traumatized by the fact that these cats are dying. I was. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things in the research that I ended up, I like woke up one day and I was like, I'm really interested in this because even though I haven't seen an incredible amount of anime movies or shows, I have noticed that there is a common one kind of common theme or a generalized kind of common theme, which is like, like there's a giant corporation, an evil corporation or science is out of control or machines are out of control. We're destroying the earth. We're destroying the human race. And it's like, it's very widespread. Yes. I know you do have the supernatural elements but the supernatural elements kind of blend into that like oh they've destroyed the world and now we have to live here it's post-apocalyptic and so it's like why is this a common threat i was like fuck historical trauma cultural trauma and i was like this is interesting to me mm-hmm. for sure yeah. so we read some really wonderful articles this month talking about cultural and historical trauma so there's going to be a bit of a history lesson maybe a refresher for folks here so some of the biggest trauma and 
traumas, I guess, to happen to Japan was the, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Also, the fire bombings of Tokyo during World War II. So these were a hugely traumatic experience for the Japanese people. So it's not a surprise that for years and years, and even today, we can still see remnants of this trauma in their entertainment, in their film, in their series, in anime. The devastation remained at the forefront of their consciousness, okay? And this is kind of part of their healing process. So they keep this imagery in their literature, their music, and their art to remind them, but also to heal of those traumatic, terrible things that happened to them. And so you see, again, in a lot of this anime, general themes that I noticed. We have orphaned kids, radiation sickness, a loss of natural independence, the destruction of nature, and that is what influences the genre. Yeah, and it's always, too, about these traumas, but then always about survivalism. Mm -hmm. So they always are figuring out how to survive. Every character in an anime goes through a journey, and they're always being like, I'm going to survive. I'm going to do this. I'm, you know, like, we will not let the human race be wiped out. And this is what, and so that it constantly is referenced a lot in these things. And like Kelly said, it's because of these atomic bombs and because of what they've had to experience from the war, particularly after 1945 and the occupation of Japan after. More generalized themes. Again, if you're new to anime, if you haven't seen too many, but this is like overarching themes. Grief, the human's desire to conquer or dominate or control nature, the misuse of technology, and in my favorite anime of all time, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, we see that absolutely. Misuse of technology destroys the planet and their humans are just They're fighting and struggling to survive. Mutants, again, orphans. However, death, rebirth, and hopeful for the future. So there is a lot of empowering, positive elements and themes that we do get out of this. Yeah, so a lot of the anime films that came out often revolve around apocalyptic imagery. Mm -hmm. And often we see lots of references to the atomic bombs in the sense of themes of, like Kelly was saying, orphan children. We get radiation sickness, you know, their loss of their national independence, and then having to deal with American American occupation later, so often always about foreign invasions mm, and foreign yes. invaders coming in and dominating or taking over culture. Uh, an anime I want to think of in particular is Code Geass, kind of a, a same premise, like what happens if Japan was actually overrun by the British, right? Mm. And often, like you said, when Kelly brings up this whole idea of the misuse of technology, Astro Boy was actually an example of that because he was actually created to replace the dead son of a scientist who en- ends up rejecting him because he realizes that he's still just a machine, so he ends up being adopted by another person as well but it was like often like these themes of people creating you know some kind of uh, replacement for their dead children because they would have lost their children in these horrific bombings we had a lot of orphans the mutations uh, over time like what the effects were of the bombs Mm -hmm. when they were dropped on Japan and how often there were many people dying from uh, radiation sickness and then you get themes of children trying to survive on their own and the adults not being very helpful because they're all focused on themselves and going Mm -hmm. and dealing with the trauma they have experienced from these events in their history. Yeah, in the post-war years, which, you know, where all of this is kind of stemming from, this cultural trauma, Jess mentioned this a little bit earlier about this, like, bubble economy, and because after that, they had to figure themselves out. They were defeated after World War II, so they grew into this economic superpower. They were fascinated with technology. The country actually became a world leader in the production of cars, electronics, 
as we know, we all use a lot of (laughs) Japanese-created technology. In a lot of these anime, we see the theme, the idea that technology can never replace humans and that technology's capacity for helping mankind or humankind is only equaled by its capacity to destroy it. That is a direct quote from the article we read because it was so impactful to me. And that's exactly it. And Osamu Tezuka, who was a part of Toei Animation Studio, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he believed that the atomic bomb acted as the epitome of man's inherent capacity for destruction. And that in itself is a massive theme, massive theme in anime. Oh, for sure. Like these animes would actually recreate the events of the bombings Mm -hmm. and give people a sense of what it would look like. So anime allowed audiences to see these horrific events, but also create a distance. And this is why I'm saying like a film, Grave of the Fireflies, would literally destroy someone. And it destroyed me when I watched it for the first time, because it is literally about two orphans literally right after the bombs have happened Mm -hmm. and they are trying to find out they're trying to find their family and it's like these two orphan children and I can't I don't want to say anything because I'll spoil it Mm -hmm. for people but it is (laughs) so heart-wrenching to watch that and to see what the citizens of of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would have experienced and gone through so showing the sense of destruction that can come from these from this technology from this technology that created these atomic bombs Mm -hmm. end up creating these horrific events so it allows audiences to experience that we always often see the theme of doom so the entire annihilation of humanity because of the loss of the environment which kelly was talking about Mm -hmm. in like nasuka the valley uh, another popular anime that brings about uh, a theme of doom and technology and man going awry attack on titan Mm -hmm. which is a really important prominent anime too that uh, addresses a lot of these Mm -hmm. scenes of being a modern one too yeah a very a modern one season the final season is coming out december 7th people uh you know (laughs) don't forget in case you're Don't wondering. Don't forget, people, <laughs> just in case if you're an Attack on Titan fan. Um, but it really ended up showing, you know, how uh, an economic crisis can bring a whole world to disaster and then, you know, the focus on society and technology could lead to a nuclear disaster and potentially the end of the world. And then you get the side effects. What is life like after an atomic world? And mm-hmm. that's something that's really interesting. And I've seen these animes, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic, where it's like they're trying to survive. Is humanity trying to survive in some way, shape, or form? And then what what happened what are the side effects of the war so from the radiation you end up getting your superhumans mm-hmm. you know your characters who have superhuman strength or abilities and then they also get a super interest in the occult because of course when you come so close to death mm-hmm. of course you're going to become fascinated and obsessed with the afterlife mm-hmm. and so there's this rise in Japanese anime which is intimately linked to Japanese culture which is uh, this study of the occult and linking it to the Japanese preoccupation after World War II because that became uh, a sense of of re- rediscovering their identity mm-hmm. after the war. Yeah, it really, like, anime was able to allow people who were coming out of those traumas able to, he- like, heal through these traumas, but then educating generations later. Mm-hmm. And not just generations later in Japan, but across the world. Mm-hmm. You can't watch these animes and not see these themes and not understand the, these this impact it would have on individuals. Mm-hmm. So the themes of death and rebirth are, as you can see, so, so prevalent, so common, commonly used as plot devices to symbolize the lives of many Japanese folks and their post-war experiences, gener- cross-generational. And there's one direct quote from from an article that we read that said, accepting and deeply experiencing shock is an organic 
quality of Japanese culture. When the bipolar world of the Cold War has been destroyed and the fear of terrorism intensifies day by day, the ability to survive and reflect upon trauma becomes a key survival skill. And then Lily Cat. <laughs> I was going to say, so like how, like, so we're talking about this history of uh, animation in terms of the themes that are coming out of survivalism and cultural trauma. Like, how do we see this in Lily Cat in the 1980s, right? So I actually found uh, Demon City to be the much more interesting, relatable, relevant film out of these two. So Lily Cat, I know, yes. we, you know, we see the usage of technology. I wouldn't say that these people specifically have this intense desire to survive. I mean, some of them do, I feel like by chance. <laughs> but it does have that theme of some in powerful invading force onto the spaceship that they don't yeah. really understand. They didn't necessarily try to, but that could be like a cinematic entertainment thing, but they don't really try to understand what this bacterium is all about. Just that it is happening. We're really confused, which, you know, could be a relevant thing to, to day-to-day life. Like we do have an invading force. How do we, how do we protect ourselves? What can we do about this? How do we prevent this from happening again? We don't necessarily get that because we have a 75 minute film but I mean that could be generally relevant to to what we're talking about I think. Yeah well I think what we get is a lot of this old versus new people versus machines Mm -hmm. because we see that in in the sense of the the, the cyborg cat like it is connected to mother which is the machine that which is the robot controlling Mm -hmm. the entire ship hello alien totally (laughs) you know and it's essentially it was keeping the bacteria alive because they were creating a new alien species. Right. <laughs> and so once like right? So this yes. once again it's like they're this group that's part of this corporation that's going out to explore space. Yep. And then once again we have the secret underdealings of the corporation being like, okay, so now we're going to use technology and foreign bacteria to create a whole new species of humans. Yeah. And True, this is, disposable, <laughs> expendable. Yeah, <exactly. laughs> you know, because they're turning into something else. They yeah. literally turn into yeah. these alien life beings yeah. and just that reality of, you know, being in space and the reality of death in space. Oh, and, yes. And like you said, we weren't always too sure about these people's, how closely they want to survive because A, they're quick to turn on each other and be like you said they don't really they don't really fight often enough to survive they do a lot of running and a lot of being like well she has the bacteria in her yeah. So she killed herself. Yeah. Or she sacrificed herself, right? Yeah. I also found interesting in Lily Cat, and normally in like space horror, if you're on a spaceship, everybody has their role. Like, this is the medical officer. Here is the captain. Like, here are like very set roles. Here's like your science person, your mm-hmm. tech person, your medical person. And I didn't really remember seeing like very set roles. It was like generic group of people yeah. being accosted by a non generic bacterium to create a new species. <laughs> Like they literally too, like they literally wake up yeah. and it happens. Yep. They're like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's obviously granted to the 75 minute, you know, you're, you're in and out type thing. Yeah. So it's like, but. <laughs> well, if we want to continue on the theme of this historical trauma and cultural trauma, you know, let's jump into Demon City Shinjuku because I guess it's also one of my favorites and I enjoy this one a lot. Excellent. Let's do it. I shall create hell on earth. Ah! 
For me, first time watch, and that's the end of my story. <laughs> I hadn't heard of either one of these movies before Jess recommended them. Yes, and for me, once again, it was another late night anime recording and watching in <laughs> private. <laughs> so once again, tell me what did, what did you like about this one? So I liked the premise and space horror aspect of Lily Cat more, but as a film to watch for entertainment, I liked Demon City Shinduku a hell of a lot more. So folks, this came out in 1988. So yes, we're still in the 80s. I thought this was, I thought Lilycat was very like flat and Demon City Shinduku is beautiful. It has intent, that opening sequence is amazing. The cinematography for it, if that's what you would call an animation, um, just the usage of color, the animation style. I thought it was stunning to watch. So visually much more appealing. I did enjoy that a lot. Arifesto is super hot. <laughs> Should have got a heads up on that. Hot yeah. anime guy with long hair. <laughs> a lot of anime crushes in my past. I believe it. In your past. Still are, I'm sure. <laughs> Tuxedo mask. Oh my God. <laughs> um, you know, a lot for me, a lot of anime is actually quite cheesy, um, but mm, then yeah. it can often be also very charming overall. So that's what I found for Demon City Shinjuku is that it was quite cheesy a lot of the times, but then still very charming. I love this anime because one of the things I really gravitate towards in various anime styles is like, and I will watch any type of anime, like I'm into it, but I tend to really like the anime that deals with the occult. Mm -hmm. and, Makes sense. and just because I think uh, the Japanese have a really interesting perspective and relationship with the, with the occult. Mm -hmm. And I love how in these animes you explore these elements of everything in terms of like demons and ghosts and you know, the power. And yeah, it does have the cheesy like, good versus evil, light versus darkness, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's the themes of the young boy becoming a man and stepping into his father's footsteps, you know, to fight the evil that's threatening to devour Tokyo and essentially the Earth, but I love it. It's because it's you get those epic battle scenes. You get that epic battle scene in the beginning, you get the epic battle scene at the end, yep. you get the, you know, creepy ghost child oh my <laughs> that comes <Yeah>. out. <laughs> you know, you just and you get like the really weird interesting demons and I, I don't know if you've seen Wicked City yet but that's no. like similar to mm -hmm. that but yeah I just I I love it it's one of my one of my favorites mm. yeah I don't think I knew that this is one of your favorites anime ever so that's interesting mm -hmm. I'm gonna assume you don't dislike anything about it or do you the only thing I dislike about it is the character of Sayaka mm -hmm. and I didn't realize how I guess not really like she's not really flat of the character but like I love the animes where the female characters are badass mm -hmm. and they're they're snarky and they you know they got a bit of an attitude and I'm starting to realize especially now that I'm older that there's anime characters that I, I relate to more now than I did when I was younger mm -hmm. but her character mm -hmm. is just, just like she's doing everything she's 
she's being the typical version of society wants to see her as a woman. She is vulnerable. She is a mother figure. She is meek, mm-hmm. but yet she's strong in her vulnerability. But at the same time, too, she's it's all about her being a mother and being like very loving. You know, when that's how she's able to get that demon child to or demon ghost yeah. to go away is because she hugs her because she takes the mother role, and that's the only thing that bothers me. I'm just like, oh, I want my female characters to be more badass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, she was very forgettable. I when you. Said said her name i was like yeah. i don't even know who that is oh right it's supposed to be like a protagonist yeah. okay yes very forgettable <laughs> the <main> protagonist <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i exactly. remember the demon child ghost cro- creepy child yes yes um, yeah. you never forget the ghost creepy i children. will never forget that <laughs> cats being torn apart and creepy children i will not forget um so yeah only dislike actually in this movie was that you know cats are dying so thank you jess uh, <laughs> I did want to, uh, after watching oh, like six, six series for my taboo terrors and these two movies, my note for, for on anime was that, so normally like in the normal format for a movie is beginning, middle and end. But for anime, I believe it's middle and end or it's just end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no flow of beginning, middle and end. It's either end or like maybe we're like we've completely taken away that beginning part and now we're just fucking in it lightning speed like that's just it you're in for a ride <laughs> yeah or sometimes you get beginning middle and you never get the end and i just finished dead man's wonderland is only 13 episodes and i'm mad that i don't have more because i know there's so much more that happens right and it just right. ends so i'm like but wait you didn't explain this you didn't explain this oh, you didn't God. explain this and there's so okay, much there not, you go you know, but <laughs> <laughs> like it is i think that's maybe why I don't know. I don't. I haven't run across a lot of people that are like big, big fans, but it's because the formatting of it is so vastly different than what we're used to in North American movies, like regular entertainment, drama, comedies, horror. There's yeah. usually, yeah, that's the standard format, you know, for songs, for for films. So it's it's a little bit jarring, and I think sometimes it's that's what's hard for people to get into and and to like about it because it's so vastly different than what we're used to. So you're either going to be into that or you're not going to be into it. And I feel like I understand both of those things, those viewpoints, absolutely, because it's wacky. Anime is wacky. And also, not everyone also remembers, too, and a lot of anime movies and anime series are based off of a manga series, mm-hmm. which is actually, like, we know them as graphic novels, but in Japan, they're known as manga, and they're, like, these sick little books, and they have, like, the full storyline yeah. in there. And yeah. So some of these movies are just, like, they decided Snippets. to make an animated section of that on, and so you're like, oh, well, now I need to go read the manga, which I've done many times and have to do with Dead Man's Wonderland, is go read the manga to find out what happens. Yeah, I felt that way when I was watching Violet. Violence Jack because he took three stories out of like a long running uh, manga series and just put them into like three hour long episodes. I was like, oh, there's so much more to this world and this character of Violence Jack that like I don't like barely scratch the surface of in these. And I was like, fuck, man, now I got to go watch. I watch. Now I got to go watch with my eyes. So with my read the manga because (laughs) what is happening? I need to know more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. That's a good thing to, to remind folks on. So you were saying earlier that with our theme of survivalism and cultural trauma, you felt that Demon City Sinjuku related more to what we were talking about. So let's let's talk about that for sure. Japanese popular culture has engaged with the memories of our Second World War, at least, you know, starting in the 1950s. And I have to do a little shout out to Godzilla 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love Godzilla <laughs> because the, the first Godzilla film took on atomic bombing, atomic testing, the wholesale destruction of the cities and the American culture, the American army as the enemy. So the war, Japanese defeat and the atomic bombings manifested itself as we see in anime in kind of like this overall almost fascination and obsession of the apocalypse, which definitely has been a staple of Japanese animation since the 1970s. So post-World War II and into the 70s and 80s, and we're kind of focusing on the 80s because that's where our two animes are from. So anime around this time was a product of its time when Japan was about one generation away from an, from the war, an era in which technology and their economic success seemed to promise a bright, bright future. We can move on from our traumatic past. We can move on to bigger and better things. But there was also one expressed anxiety, which is we kind of touched on this earlier about lily cat and things, but the loss of basic Japanese traditions, including the notions of community, sacrifice and respect for the past. So anime has kind of turned into cultural therapy. So we have the films depicting past historical traumas. We're revisiting, we're reliving them over and over in even very direct or indirect ways in a very fantastical way. Sometimes even more palatable or digestible if it's in a fantasy, super sci-fi kind of way to help resolve those feelings and express our emotions or their emotions, sorry. And that was huge because when you think about what happened after World War II and after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was Japan's occupation by the American military and it ended up changing Japan. Like, mm-hmm. and it changed in a significant way. So like yeah. in the 1947, the Japanese had to rewrite their constitution to separate state from religion. Now the emperor was had his role delimited to that of just being a symbol instead of having any say in politics. They also outlawed the use of war for settling international disputes. And so like the Japanese, like, they felt really defeated and they also felt like they're, you know, really beaten down. But then when they're occupied by the Americans, a lot of Americanization happened and a lot of changes in the in, in Japanese culture. And so it wasn't really until like the 1952 when the American occupation ended that Japan was able to restructure itself again. And they, you know, reformed like labor acts, they changed the education system. And there was also more of an enfranchisement of women. So we see this culture that went from being severely beaten down, and we've seen this in, in a lot of different animes, to all of a sudden rising up and becoming an economic powerhouse. And then, you know, we see that as it's growing in the 60s and 70s. We're becoming, we have a highly educated workforce. We have a government that's focused on economic goals. You know, workers are very loyal and hardworking. And an interesting thing enough is I learned a lot about recent Japanese culture and stuff like that in when I was in my preteens and that through Japanese anime. Mm-hmm. I'd be so mm-hmm. I'd be super curious by some of the traditions or things that were being shown in these animes that I would go and research it myself yeah. and learn about these changes in their economy and their changes in their technology. They started to assimilate foreign technology and then sell it back to the Western, <laughs> to the Western society. Yep. Like, oh, we'll take your technology, make it smaller and sell it back to you. Make it better. <laughs> you know, make it better. And the American occupation really changed also the, their cultural transformation. Like Kelly said, they became afraid of losing those uh, Japanese traditions because the youth being introduced to American ideals and society changing so no longer were people marrying having arranged marriages you're they're marrying for love mm-hmm. that becomes huge in Japanese anime this whole concept of falling in love and and doing everything out of love you know exporting their own culture mm-hmm. gender inequality was being rebalanced so uh, 
Japan had always been patriarchal society, mm-hmm. but in the 1960s, we started seeing women returning to the workforce, becoming office ladies, start going to universities, and it's not just about families. And we still see that in a lot of Japanese animes, that really the emphasis of, of the family again. Mm-hmm. But at least women were starting to have a choice now between career and family and deciding that for themselves. So there were two quotes in Demon City that really stood out to me that was really relevant to to all of this. And I I know and I'm sure there's tons of other anime. I just found Lily Cat did not give me the amount of cultural <laughs> cultural therapy and trauma I was maybe looking for when I didn't even realize I was looking for it. But Arafesto, that's his name, right? That the hot guy, Arafesto. So two th- he said two things. He was very wise living in Demon City. So he says something along the lines of, so when referring to Demon City, he says, we used nuclear weapons, but it didn't help. So there was that uh, interjection, that mention of nuclear weapons, and that wasn't enough to defeat the demons in this supernatural occult film. (laughs) It was a symbol. The atomic bomb is a symbol to the Japanese of powerlessness and victimhood, which was happening in the Demon City. Exactly. Thank you. Yep. And then he also said, and I thought this is just ever forever relevant in our human world. He says, we have always fought and caused chaos. Loving each other is too hard. So as a human species, we love to dominate and fight and control and destroy. We don't try to work together and build a community and as a whole planet community, as a community of human beings, it's too hard to to get along. We'd rather just, I guess it's maybe easier just to fight and destroy and not come together as one species. And I definitely find that as an overarching theme in, in anime. And I found that very kind of poignant in this film that I wasn't expecting and I was really surprised and, and, and happy for. Well, because particularly in that anime, the in Demon City, it's about, you know, the ambassador, the leader, he's internationally known for like ending a lot of disputes and world peace and stuff like that so he's this important figure and then all of a sudden uh rabbi ray is calling all the evil into the world he wants to destroy them yep. so that evil can reign and that you know the house the the, de- the devil shake is what they call it, that took over a part of tokyo which was shinjuku yep. can continue to expand and because they they actually call uh the ambassador which is sayaka's father the arrival of the messiah in mm-hmm. terms of creating peace on earth and creating the end of times and the end of humanity and that his, you know, it's just like so many of these scenes of like, you know, the son rising up and taking his father's um, role in terms of protecting, you know, what's good in humanity mm-hmm. against the evil, right? And that was what was interesting about the demon city was that they were saying too that only the scum of the earth would come to this city. Yeah. You know, all those who were, you know, the victims of true evil and who got caught off guard. And it's really super interesting. And that's what I loved about Demon City. And that's why I felt like it, you know, relating to this idea of, the cultural trauma in terms of also trying to heal from it as well like because in the sense like the devil shake Shinjuku is like this festering wound that needed to be healed mm-hmm. and for me personally I really feel like and this is like way bigger than we're going to talk about and it's a huge huge issue but like atomic bombs nuclear weapons should be used as like an, a weapon of last resort exact like exhaust all alternatives exhaust all options which i would feel like you did would do if it was a demon city (laughs) yeah your nuclear weapons you're saving for when shit is really getting real 
and you need to bring out your quote unquote big guns. Okay, let's use these weapons. Oh, it didn't help because the power of evil is too, it's too strong. <laughs> it's fantastical <laughs> in this movie, but that kind of led me down. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. I won't tell you everything okay. that I went down into, okay. but it was okay. definitely a rabbit hole. But just, I was really curious. I'm like, okay. Nuclear weapons, atomic bombs, like how many times have they been used? And like, what is this all about? So nuclear weapons have actually only been used twice in our entire human existence. And both times they were employed for the sake of war and both by the United States on Japan. Terrible, terrible, terrible things. Over 200,000 people died due to those two nuclear bombings. And of course, led that leads to a lot of ethical questions of why do we have these? Why have we created these? Why is this the thing that we have to do? We threaten each other with all the time. And it is devastating. It's infuriating. It's upsetting. It's our crazy, crazy world. Yeah. And like, I couldn't imagine being part of a culture that had to under, that had to experience that and growing up with that as part of your history being like we had these two essentially life decimating bombs dropped on our little island and could almost have wiped us out and that's why animation and anime addressing these themes is providing that cultural therapy to Mm -hmm. ease anxieties about the past and have people give them hope again about the future and rewrite those uh, narratives and a lot of these series allow people to address the issues of what it felt like to have been defeated in a war in such in, in a war in such a way mm-hmm. in such a traumatic way. Absolutely. And then my other rabbit hole, because I was you know, mm. thinking about cultural trauma and this idea of survivalism. Well, survivalism is like a completely different thing, but just like this um, survivalist, that was a different hole <laughs> that I went into. Drive into. to survive. Oh, this is a great one. <laughs> Discovery <laughs> and research. Uh, but just this like pure drive to survive is not only because of atomic bombing and the th- this like always is like over looming threat throughout the world of, oh, well, the U.S., are they going to do it again? Even though shit hasn't, you know, gotten too crazy, but they're just like, they obviously have no qualms about doing this. So what are we going to do? Like we just always, I always, I feel like they just would be in fear all the time or this like level of uncertainty. Maybe they feel better now being 2021. I'm sure they do. But the amount of years and decades of uncertainty of, you know, what's going to happen next? Is this going to happen again? Like just that absolute devastation. And then also the amount of natural disasters that Japan goes through is astounding. So two of the biggest ones, Mm -hmm. one was the Great Kanto earthquake in 1923. And then 2011 was the Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. So two out of five most Expensive natural disasters in recent history happened in 1995 and 2011 in Japan. It has been the site of the 10 worst natural disasters of the 21st century. They have tsunamis, floods, typhoons, earthquakes, cyclones, volcanoes. They have gone through thousands of years of natural disasters affecting their economy, the development of their civilization, of their people, of everything, their social life. Like, are you kidding me? So like add all of that together and no wonder anime is rife with all of these themes of death, apocalypse, 
rebirth, the perseverance of, of humans and people. And I just found that so fascinating as to come like kind of full circle here. But holy moly, because in Canada, we don't deal with this. This is not our everyday experience. So wowzers. Why do you think I was bored with like Canadian <laughs> cartoons? I'm like, well, this is boring. I don't want to learn yeah. my ABCs. Yeah. I want to learn about the nature of death and life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Bring, on, bring it on. Come on, Neil. Yes. This is Evangelion. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah, absolutely. You really learn a lot about Japanese culture and have a lot of respect for the history and the culture and the people for what they have to, what they have gone through, not just like, like you said, with the wars and stuff like that, but then you've got the, the natural disasters. You're this island that is always at the mercy of nature. And, you know, to imagine, and this is why I think like the, the very animes that deal a lot around like natural disasters and nature, you know, Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa, you know, because they're at the mercy of these environmental disasters because our earth is changing mm-hmm. and things are happening that's causing, you know, our planet to have all these weird changes in weather and stuff like that. And they're at the mercy of this. So this is why it's like you get those yeah. animes that are based around nature because it's like, well, stop screwing up because they literally may just wipe out a whole civilization at some point. Yep, exactly. Well, I am so happy that you went down those rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> it brings a lot of interesting stuff up. <laughs> I was fascinated. This was fantastic. Should we move on to Spencer's final thought? I think we should. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our new sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're Spencer's, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or a good book. Yes. With a hot mug of delicious tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what really stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky names. With Shy the 13th and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in I love coconut. And I'm currently obsessed with Screamsicle. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian listeners, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. When I look back at my history with Japanese anime, the themes of survival has always been present in all of the series that I have gobbled up. But what was important was what I found in anime, which was my means of my own survival. I discovered Sailor Moon, my gateway to Japanese anime, at a time where my life was undergoing some significant changes, going from one dysfunctional family situation into another on top of experiencing PTSD, depression from having been sexually molested as a child. It was my safe place. In anime, I found escape. I found a place where stories were fascinating and I just was so in love with the artwork and the themes that were being presented that it was a huge part of my preteen and my teenage years when I would spend hours at the kitchen table drawing out my favorite anime characters I would lay in bed all night watching different series until like 2 a.m the next morning secretly and being exhausted the next day (laughs) for school I write fan fiction I have created anime music videos I even learned I even started to teach myself html coding to make my own fan site for Sailor Moon. 
I also met many significant people in my life due to my share our shared love for anime, whether it was in online chat rooms. Uh, shout out to FMC Moon Chat. A couple people I know on Facebook still follow me that I met through there. But also I met people in real life. And presently now, my current partner is a huge anime fan. And it's something that we bond over significantly. And it means a lot to me. So like the horror genre, Japanese anime helped shape me to the person I am today. And it really helped me through some truly hard times in my life. Like, you know, one of the things I want to express, like, there were themes being presented in various animes that challenged me and made me think. One of these being the exposure to queer relationships on TV was because of Sailor Moon. When I discovered the true nature of Sailor Uranus and Neptune's relationship, I was on board. They are not cousins. (laughs) This month has been a real treat for me, going back and revisiting some of my favorite animated films and getting to talk about them, but also prompting me to go back and making anime, watching anime a regular part of my life again. And it came at such a good time, considering the burnout I had a few weeks ago. I've been able to kind of sit back and take the time I need to take care of myself and in the significant changes I made make time for me to watch anime. And in doing that I realized just how important anime is to me and how much I get from it emotionally, mentally, and creatively and I have started to now not only revisit a lot of the classics that I loved and I grew up with but also exploring newer series that have come out in the last 10 years. So to close up my final thoughts I have some recommendations for our listeners based on some of my favorite old and new series that I've seen. So start you off classics sailor moon both old and the new crystal series dragon ball dragon ball z akira perfect blue and anything by studio ghibli if you're looking for sci-fi cowboy bebop 100 neon genesis evangelion and the bubblegum crisis if you're for our horror fans obviously because this is a horror podcast i would say attack on titan parasite Devilman crybaby ninja scroll biohunter death note witch hunter robin vampire hunter d bloodlands vampire the new one called Demon Slayer that's out and Dead Man's Wonderland. And for action comedy, I give you One Punch Man, Gurren Logan, Tenchi Moyu, Trigun, and Shogugeki Food Wars. Watch an anime that's all about cooking. It's amazing. I hated it at first, but now I love it. And then if you want some drama in your life, I would recommend Death Parade, Revolutionary Girl Utena, All My Goddess, Escaflone, Grave of the Fireflies, and Seri Celestial Legend. Wow. One, I had no idea, and that's really sad, but I'm glad you're okay, Jess. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad you had anime. Also, maybe write down those um, recommendations for our listeners, because that is an extensive list. My final thoughts. Cultural context. We talk a lot about social commentary. Well, there's also cultural commentary, and I'm calling it that. (laughs) Something that I referred to in my Taboo Terrors episode on a Serbian film. It's important to watch entertainment, film, shows, literature, when you're reading it, whatever, from a cultural viewpoint. Everybody's saying something there. (laughs) Um, It was absolutely fascinating for me uh, to understand why there are so many common reoccurring themes in anime. Through art, we can express ourselves unapologetically without judgment. Catharsis can be felt and wounds healed. Of course, every country has its dark history and Japan is no stranger to controversy. I'm looking at you, Unit 731. But we thought we would keep things positive and light and breezy during this already very dark time. Underneath the zaniness and wacky of anime, there is always something to to learn and to remember. It's also a weird, wonderful, and bizarre form of entertainment. It's over the top. It's in your face. It's erratically paced, but also can be very poignant and memorable. Even though it's not a medium I regularly visit, every time I do, I enjoy myself immensely. 
So here are my recommendations. So there are a bunch that I've seen in my lifetime. I don't always remember the full details of them to confidently recommend them, but here is my short list. If you want strong, complex female leads with environmental destruction and love of animals, Nausicaa on the Valley of the Wind and Princess Mononoke. Do you want violence, murder, and mayhem? I say Violence Jack, Fist of the North Star, Akira, and Attack on Titan. Do you want social commentary, great storyline, disturbing imagery, and themes? Elfin lied. This has been a great, fun, and interesting month, so thank you for suggesting it, Jess. You are more than welcome. <laughs> I'm so excited that you enjoyed it as much as I did. And that ends our episode on Japanese horror anime for the 1980s. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and Brandon for his work on our promotional materials. And also to all you listeners, we want to remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com, Facebook, Spinsters of Horror, as well as our Facebook coven, Spinsters of Horror Coven. We're also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters. We're on Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please write and review us on iTunes because it gets the show out to new listeners, but also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and any podcasting app you listen to us on. We have merch, so please go to Public. that's T-E-E, public, to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop on our website and donate. We have a donation button on our shop page. Next month, we are getting abducted. Jess and I are revisiting some trauma of our own by looking upwards and into aliens. We will be discussing the terror of extraterrestrials, abduction, and how abduction affects not only those who have experienced it, but their loved ones as well. The movies up for discussion is the classic Fire in the Sky and the newer, equally as terrifying Dark Skies. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.